We're actually going to talk about that tonight. Thank you, Brian. Must, must have been that Holy Ghost thing. Okay. That's good. You know, this is a very interesting passage we're going to look at tonight. Very familiar, sometimes viewed as out there, kind of a thing too far to be grasped. But actually, this particular passage is where we live. It actually deals with stuff that we deal with every day. And many times we look at passages like this and think they don't really apply because, you know, it's Jesus, he's doing really cool stuff, but that's not us. But this passage, while it talks about Christ the King being tested and proven, it also gives us insight into the very things that we will struggle and wrestle with today, tonight, tomorrow, every day. It's, it's interesting. I was looking over just some thoughts about temptation. There was an interesting quote from Mae West. There are a lot of different thoughts about how temptation works. Mae West was the best. She goes, when I'm confronted with temptation, I just give in. The end. I thought, well, that's an interesting approach. We will see that biblically there's another approach to temptation and, and, and how it all fits. But, you know, many times we will look at this particular passage and then we'll cross-reference it to others. And I think we need to make sure we understand that the word temptation and testing and trials, they actually all come from exactly the same root. And many times they're used somewhat interchangeably and usually where there's trials, there's temptation. And sometimes where there's temptation, we find ourselves in the middle of a, a trial. But in God's economy, all these things are there to refine and hone and test. Test in the sense, not like test, pass, or fail. Test in the sense of let's let you see what's actually going on inside your heart. As a matter of fact, I love the exhortations out of the Psalms where the psalmist will repeatedly say, Lord, test me. Not for God's benefit, but for my benefit, so I can see what's in me. Because unfortunately, I think we many times live in ignorance of what's actually inside us. So we're going to look at this marvelous passage in Matthew 4 tonight. But before we get to it, and this is not a question for you to discuss with folks around you, I just just want you to pause a moment and think about what temptation do I wrestle with? What's like my constant companion in terms of temptation? Something that's just, it will not go away. What's yours? What's your constant source of struggle that you have victories with, but sometimes you go down with it and completely fail? I think we're going to find in this passage a very encouraging and discouraging word that occurs simultaneously, and that is Christ has overcome, and we can too. But temptations will always be with us. They'll always be with us. There will always be temptations. As a matter of fact, while there are those who live the outlier life out in the desert somewhere and the monastic approach, that's not most of us. And the funny thing is, even if you are far away, there are still temptations. And they move from external to internal and things that people wrestle with in their own heart, in their own mind, and struggle. So They will always be with us. It's the nature of living in a world that's fallen, that's filled with things that are attempting to waylay us. And we'll see how that pattern unfolds as we look through this particular passage. So really, one of the struggles is going to be, as we look at this, not just looking at Jesus as he overcomes something, but begin to personalize it. What does this mean for me and the issues that I wrestle with, the temptations that seem to never end? How do I overcome them? What does that mean for my daily life? And my prayer today is that God will reveal to us what we need to overcome 
and what we see in Christ that will encourage us and give us hope that, uh, that there are ways through, out, above, on top of the things that uh, challenge us. So as, as we look today at this particular passage, we're going to look at three specific things. We're just going to do a real brief little reminder in terms of what's, what's the nature of temptation. Let me come, kind of what's it all about. It gets thrown around a lot. We're just going to take a look at biblically what is it all about. And then we're going to look in specifically at the Matthew 4 passage and take a close look as Jesus walks through this very interesting narrative where he is tempted in the desert. And then we're going to take both of those and we're going to bring them down to where we live and say, okay, so what? What does that mean for us? Where do we go now? So with that in mind, let's just pause for a moment. You probably still have that question in your mind. What's my temptation? Let's just wait on the Lord for just a moment. Let's just submit this time to him. Just pray with me. Lord, your word is powerful. My prayer tonight for myself and each one of us is that it will now penetrate into our hearts, into the inner being. It begins to divide between those things that are true and false, those things that are real and imagined, those things that are in your kingdom and of your kingdom, and those things that are just of us, and separate very clearly so that your word can find a place of great impact in our lives. Would you do that to honor your name and to extend your kingdom, O God? In the name of Jesus, we make our request. Amen? Amen. Okay, here we go. Let's, let's turn first to the book of James. And we're just going to jump over to where it says the nature of temptation. We'll jump up to that. So, what is this nature of, what, what is temptation all about? Well, read with me in James chapter 1, a classic passage where uh, perhaps you've even memorized some of these, these particular verses. James chapter 1, verse 12, says this. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow of change. So here we are. What is the nature of things that tempt us? According to James writing here, where do most of our temptations come from? In us. As a matter of fact, there was a, there's a kind of a funny little saying that says, um, when the devil comes to tempt, he doesn't bring a goat, he just gets yours. Many times those things in us are the things that are, we're drawn, that we're drawn to in terms of finding some, some area of temptation of being challenged with it. And so we have these internal mechanisms in us, our own nature that is still, we're still being transformed, and we have these components at war within us that are being tempted by evil around us, not from God, but from the one whose name is actually the tempter, and he comes to lead us astray. Now notice, temptation is not sin. Let's just clear that little part up. Being tempted is not sin. Where does sin come in? Well, it's at the end of this rather complex process because temptation is 
not simple. It's life in this world. There are temptations all around. And they come in visually. They come in emotionally. Come in in terms of times of need. They come in... Actually, I'm working on a devotional right now for a, for a meeting coming up next month. And the focus is temp- the temptation of success. There are interesting temptations that come when things are going good. And we'll talk about some of those a little bit later. But those temptations are within us, and the evil one will capitalize on those things. He will take our pride that we have done some marvelous thing and then draw us along that path and lead us to the place where we begin to think we actually did that thing. That, look at that wonderful thing. I did that. I kind of deserve the glory here. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians, there's a challenge that says, those who stand, take heed, lest you fall. The very time when we think we're at our best and standing on the pinnacle is actually the most dangerous time, where temptation comes in to lead us to a prideful and overconfidence place where we begin to think it's about us and our strength, and so we fall. But you know, we don't overcome by our strength, do we? When you look into the scriptures, how do we overcome? By the word, by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's how we overcome the testimony of our faith. So we have these desires in us. And by the way, there's that whole world of getting to know your own heart. As a matter of fact, as time goes on, I find that my prayer has shifted very much from protect me from all these things out here to, oh God, deal with these things in here. Because there's a lot of things still in here that need God's attention. And notice in this passage, James doesn't say, if you're going to be tempted. What does he say? When? Oh, it's, it's with us. It's a constant companion. And notice here, too, that the, that the process is temptation. We can move past that and not fall into it. But when we give ourselves to temptation, then what happens? We're enticed, and and, and by the way, there's a very interesting little phrase here that says, when one is tempted and carried away, that's 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 a very interesting phrase, because it doesn't mean it picks us up, it means actually we give ourselves to it and we like ride along with it like it's a wave, and we just are carried along by it. When that happens, when we submit ourselves to it, we're enticed by our own lust, it says that a very interesting process takes place, that that then conceives. It's a very interesting human image. This is what happens. Something happens of a very conceptual nature, but it produces something real. And what's the real birth thing that is birthed out of this process? Sin, which then leads to death. And, you know, sometimes we look at this and go, well, are we talking about physical death? I'm convinced that in most cases, the death that comes here is that sense of separation from God that we're suddenly had capacity to engage, but now we feel like we don't because we feel very separated. And it creates in us a sense of a gulf. And so we turn just like Adam and Eve did when in that passage in Genesis when God comes into the garden. He says, where are you? Where were they? God hadn't moved. He was there. He was still calling out for them, but where were they? Hiding, filled with shame. Those things then flood into us and they separate us from God. And they cause us to turn away and to push away. So it's interesting, in this process, it's not that the temptation is simple, but it can, if we give ourselves to it, it'll give birth. Now listen to this. That passage is really interesting when it says that we are dragged away. 
Not only are we carried, but we're dragged away by our evil desires and enticed. I'd like to think that I'm completely powerless here, that I, there's nothing, I, I can't help it. It just like got a hold of me and drug me away. But the truth of the matter is, we actually give ourselves to it and allow ourselves to be dragged away. And then it, then it leads to the, to the outcome. And I think the challenge here is really an interesting one because look at the end of this passage. Why in the world does in verse 17, he jump over to this very interesting passage where he says, because every good gift comes from God. What does that have to do with this passage? What does that have to do with temptation? What does that have to do with sin being the outcome of our choices to follow it? And I think that's because at its core, temptation, and we'll see this in in the experience Jesus has, temptation comes to challenge the goodness of God. Because we see something over here that makes us unhappy with what's here. And we think that must be better than this. And in most cases... Temptation comes to rob us of a sense that God is good. And what he has for us is good. And what is happening in our lives is good because it has come from him. Because at its core, it's really about dissatisfaction, isn't it? To look over there and go, hey, that grass looks way greener than this grass. Now, the truth of the matter is, and we'll find this later, that's a total illusion. It's a total illusion. And that's the nature of temptation is it leads us to a sense of an illusion that something is that it's not, and we're going to leave something that's real for something that's a substitute. I mean, people that fall into um, issues where they're drawn away from the people they've committed themselves to, they have an illusion that I'm going to get something better over there than I have here, or that this is going to be better or more exciting, more pleasurable or more whatever than this is, but as time goes on, it really proves in many cases that's, that's not the case. So the challenge here is that the tempter doesn't come just to tempt us. It comes to challenge our thinking. It comes to challenge what we know to be true about God. And he says, as he said to Eve, God didn't really say that, did he? Did he really say that? That that you couldn't do this and that? He comes to us and says the same thing. Why is God holding this good thing away from you? How come you can't have that? I think you deserve that. You should go after it. And so we give in to the temptation. But you know, the good news is, and we'll see this in a later passage, God knows our frame, our weakness, our desires. And that's why in verse 17, the writer of James reminds us, God is good. That these temptations are an illusion. Don't give in to them because God is good. The things he has given you, they're the good things. So interestingly, when we think about temptation, we often think about those little things that kind of take our attention away. But actually, temptation comes to challenge us in our position in Christ, our position in God to be satisfied, to be happy, to be filled with with joy at what we have in him and to make us unhappy and to be drawn away by something we think will take its place. So so just pause for for a moment. Do Do you ever get to that point where you ask the question, is God really good? Is this situation I'm in good? Is this the best? Is this something good? Does God care for me? Does he care about my happiness? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Do you ever have those questions pop up? How could God be good if this thing is happening? Uh, I was in a meeting yesterday and got a phone call, and it was from one of the guys I work with. And we have a trip coming up where we're going to connect in a different state. And he said, by the way, I might be a little late. I've got to change my plans. 
because that young woman who was murdered in Indianapolis was one of my students, one of my past students. And her father's one of my closest friends. So I've got to pack up my bags and get back there because they need support, encouragement. There's a big memorial service today. It's a tragic, tragic thing. He said, but on the other hand, God is redeeming this evil thing for good. Good things are happening. And he says, how does that work? You know, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how that works. Did God allow? I don't know. I don't know the mechanism. And it was a horrible tragedy. And yet, is God still good? Does he do good things? And we have to come to grips with an answer that aligns with what the scriptures tell us about that. What makes us happy? What is good for us? Does God care for us? Because the tempter would come and say, nah, he really doesn't. And you should not be happy with wherever you are or what this is or what this thing is. Because look out here, I'm going to dangle something over here. And if our hearts turn towards that and we go, well, maybe God's not good because that looks pretty good over there. Maybe I should go over there and try a little of that. It really taps into what we believe to be true about the nature of God and his care for us. So, the temptation. Just a general comment about how that's how temptation works. Being drawn by temptation is not necessarily sin itself. It's as we pursue and allow it to come to fruition. So, let's take a look now at our passage for this evening, Matthew chapter 4. If you'll turn there in your Bibles or on your phone. Chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. It's a very familiar story. Beginning in that beginning of that chapter goes like this. This, by the way, this is after the baptism of Jesus. We don't know exactly what the time frame was. Did it happen immediately afterwards? Was there time that passed? We don't know. But what we do know is that it tells us that following the baptism experience and all the things that Chris shared with us, then beginning in verse one, Jesus was led by whom? By whom? By the Spirit. So God's plan was for you to go to this place for this experience. So he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I would believe that is one of the most understated propositions in the Bible. 40 days, 40 nights, and you're hungry. He's a better man than I am. 40 days, 40 nights, I'm a dead man. Most of us would struggle. Notice this, it says in verse 3, And the tempter then came and said to him, and now we get to these very interesting three challenges that come into the life of Christ. If you are the Son of God. Now, what had we just heard in the chapter before this? What had just happened when Jesus was baptized? A voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. A month later, the evil one comes and says, if, that's true, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Let's just pause here for just a moment. Did Jesus have capacity to do this thing? Of course. But he had chosen not to have food. So really the issue here is not that you're hungry or that you don't have access to food. That was his choice. So in comes the evil one, and he challenges both who you are and then what you are, what your capacities are. Jesus answers him, and he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
many times you're reading a commentary and they say, you know, this is, this is Jesus saying this, the power of the scriptures and all those things. I actually think it's something quite different here. I think that the evil one is tempting Jesus to say, do something really cool. You can do it. You can like do some really cool stuff here. As a matter of fact, do some magical stuff. Turn rocks into bread. Could he do that? Of course he could. Could he, could he have bread fall out of the sky? Yes. But that wasn't the question. The question was, God has a plan. Are you going to stick with the plan? Or, hey, here's something cool you could do on the side and maybe adjust the plan a little bit. As a matter of fact, you know what? You should really make this whole issue about the here and now. You're hungry now. You are really hungry. Deal with this right now. As a matter of fact, when we think about our own challenges, I think one of the difficulties with temptation comes is it brings a sense of immediacy to us that we think we, should, we deserve something right now. And I think that the American culture has really cultivated this in us. We don't like to wait. I was actually standing in a line in the Las Vegas airport. There were three of us in line. Behind me, four people walked up, stood there for a minute or two, and then <laughs> walked off. I'm thinking, really, you can't wait? in a line with three people? And the answer is, no, we can't. Because there's a place over there. I'll go over there and get faster food than I can get here. We don't like to wait. And so the evil one comes here and he says, hey, look, you've got a need, a physical need. You can take care of it right now. Don't, let's not stick with this big plan. Let's, let's deal with it. Let's do it right now. And I think the challenge is, if you have the capacity, why not? What's, what's wrong with that? If you've got the money, spend it. If you've got the talent, use it for that thing. If you've got this, why not? Why wait? Get it now. And I think the response here is not just about the power of the word. It's the fact that God provides not just capacity. Everything flows from God. Everything, not just bread. Life is found in God not in satisfying our immediate needs. Really, what Jesus is saying here to the evil one is, you know what? I'm hungry. I know that. But there's a bigger plan in play here, and I can deal with this because there's something bigger, better happening. And I'm not going to give that up for what the bigger plan is because it's not about the here and now. It's about this bigger issue that my life is connected strictly to God. And yes, I'm hungry. And which, by the way, he doesn't, he doesn't deny that he's hungry. We know he's hungry. He knows he's hungry. But he very quickly makes a point and pulls out of the scriptures a very poignant verse that reminds us that everything comes from God. Our life comes from every word that flows out of the mouth of God. That's a great concept. Not just bread. Not just food. Everything flows from God. So then the evil one goes to the second challenge, and he tempts him with this, beginning in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand upon the pinnacle of the temple. We think this is somewhere at one of the highest points in Jerusalem. And he said to him again, now, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then he quotes two interesting passages, misquotes them actually, about the angels coming to take care of you and they'll protect your feet from even striking stones. Now, what is happening here? 
Why did he do this? And why would he do it in such a puzzle? By the way, if you're in the city and in your top of the temple, what's down below you? The city, right? And what's in the city? People. This is not happening at nighttime. It's in the middle of the day. So you gaze over the city. Here are all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the devil says, hey, if you really are something special, we heard it. Do something really cool. Plunge off this high place and then let everybody see that angelic beings come and rescue you. How cool would that be? I got to tell you, when I read this part, there's a part of me that goes, yes, bring it. Because, you know, man, talk about a quick way to have people go, wow, ooh, ah. That's the show. But Jesus says a very interesting thing. Verse 7, Jesus says to him, It's written, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. How does that verse apply here? Are those other verses not true? And again, I think that the challenge here is, could you take the skill set that God has given you and use it for your own. Because if you throw yourself down and people see you rescued angelically, people are going to go, wow, look at you. You must be what we're looking for. And the challenge is, if you really are God's son, all right, let's prove, let's prove it. Let's see how much he really loves you. Let's let him protect you if, if you fall. But even more than that, why don't you do this big show and let everybody see and do something really big and cool so the just pull the curtain back and let them see how fantastic you are. And you know what? Then people will come to you. And I think, again, he's asking, he's trying to give him a shortcut. Because it's not God's plan to get attention like this. In fact, God's plan is to really get attention a completely different way. The way of humility and service. Not with the big show. Not with the grandiose magic trick from the top of the temple. And so really, this is a question about testing God's purpose and plans here. Because God's purpose and plans were quite different. And so he's really testing to see if Jesus is willing to step out into the limelight. And the answer is, no, I'm not. Because that's not the plan. And if I do that, that will actually call into question what God's plan, which he's laid on my heart, is. And i got to tell you, there's some, now we're getting into the successful issues. Now we're beyond hunger. We're getting into get some attention. Let's get some, some accolades here. Let's get some kudos. But again, Jesus draws correctly from the scriptures and reminds him that of this key verse that it's about God being preeminent in all things and his plan being preeminent. And we don't test those things. And so in verse 8, the devil then takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, all these things I'll give to you if you just fall down and worship me. Now, is this just like chutzpah? Does the devil have this kind of capacity? Can he really give this stuff away? I mean, doesn't it seem like kind of a shallow presentation? I mean, it's like this is Jesus like, what? You know, that's like somebody bringing your car saying, hey, I'll give this car to you. That's nah, my car. You can't give that to me. But the truth of the matter here is, the kingdoms of the world are his. As a matter of fact, what is the devil called? The prince of the air. This world is his. You know how he got it? We gave it to him. In the garden, we gave away ownership of this world to him. How did we do that? By becoming obedient and falling into his and sinning as we fell into the temptation through, through the first Adam. 
We gave away ownership, and it now belongs to him. He's not kidding here when he says, I can give all this to you. I can give it all to you. It's his. And he's offering to Jesus the fast way to the end of the story. Hey, you know, you want power? You want kingdoms? You want to, like, get all the glory? I can give it to you. I can. It's mine. I'll give it to you. And he's offering to Jesus the quick and easy way to the end. But you know, he's not being presumptuous here. No, no. He is offering earthly glory, earthly power. He's actually asking Jesus, shrink your vision down to this context only. I can give this to you. And I think that many times we accept a very poor substitute for a really good thing God is doing and take a very temporal substitute that in the end has very little power, very little presence, and very little staying power. But Jesus answers this one. Interestingly enough, he says, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to Jesus. Jesus challenges him with this as an issue of worship and glory and power. And you think this stuff belongs to you? It doesn't. Because there's a greater thing at work here. As a matter of fact, I, I love the... Uh, the last two books in the Narnia series because C.S. Lewis gets into this whole idea of a, a deeper thing at work than what you see. And people get captivated by what they see and this, is, this has got to happen, this has got to happen. And then Aslan comes along and he says, no, actually there's a deeper something happening behind that and you don't even know about that. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. There's a deeper work here and the kingdoms of this world are very temporal. And so, yes, you can offer them to me and worship you? No, that's not going to happen. Because I'm connected to a way bigger plan that you don't even know about. And it has to do with the glory of God, which you don't know about. And he challenges him there with, again, a response out of the scriptures correctly presented that then recontextualizes what the question is. And that is, you think you're on the throne, but you're not. And you think you have this power, but it's temporary. And that actually the kind of worship you get is temporary as well. I'm connected to a much bigger, deeper longer thing. And I will not be distracted from that. And so here comes Jesus. He proves his kingship by not just surviving, but overcoming these challenges and expresses to the evil one, one, you know, said, you know what? I trust in God, his plan. I'm all about his plan, not your plan, not my plan, his plan. It's a good one. And I'm not going to take a shortcut. He invokes the truth of the scriptures. And you know, sometimes we look at this passage and go, oh, you know, Jesus just knew the Bible so well, he could just like take a verse and like throw it down. Uh, that's not what's happening here. This is, this is, and by the way, I'm not against Bible memory, I'm all about it. But this is not an exhortation to memorize the Bible. Jesus is pulling these verses out, not because he had them memorized, because he knew what they meant. He had the, it was the good stuff. It's like when you hear a verse and kind of go, I'm not sure that person knows what that verse is, because that doesn't seem to make sense. Versus someone that goes, boop. And it has power and depth and application. You go, now that's powerful. Not because they memorized it, but because they live it, embrace it. It's part of them. That's what's happening here. He invokes the truth of the word, not by memory, but by experience. This is what the word is all about. So when he says you worship God only, that's not a cool verse he memorized. That's the truth of the way things are. Not worshiping you. Because here's the truth. Only God deserves glory, not you. And yes, you could, you could do these things. I could throw myself down and 
I could ask God to protect me, but that's not what the plan is here. There's a bigger plan, and I know that because here's this passage that has the expression of that greater plan. And then thirdly, Jesus accurately identifies here what is temporal and what is eternal. And all the things the devil was offering, power, glory, bread, attention, the big show, that's temporary. It's flash in the pan. It comes and it goes. Jesus knows there is a much deeper thing happening that is eternal, and he is committed to that, and we see that as he interfaces with these challenges and temptations that come his way. So to some degree, this passage is a proving of his kingship. Now, to the Jewish mind, they saw all three of these, and they directly connected with things they knew to be true. When they saw that first one about stones into bread, what's the first thing that popped into their mind? Manna. Manna. Israel in the desert, and God said, and they went, yes, we, knew, we know that. And then when he gets to the second one about how you don't put God to the test, what did they think of? Again, in the desert, when Israel put God to the test, and what happened? Judgment. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. We know you don't do that. And then when we get to, to this last one about you worship God only, they immediately jumped to Deuteronomy and went, of course, the Lord is one. He's the only one you worship. You don't worship anybody else. So the, to the Jewish reader, all three of these just rang the bell for him. And they went, yes, way to go, Jesus. Because he was connecting with their Jewish roots, the Jewish history. And suddenly they look at him and they go, not only is he a connecting point, he is the embodiment of what we know to be true coming out of our most treasured stories. And so they saw a deep connection there. So Matthew was connecting a lot of interesting things here, both to the Jewish reader as well as to us as we see him deal with, with, the, with these challenges. Now, so what about us? You know, the temptation for us is to kind of look and go, hey, and nobody's taking me to the top of the temple saying, throw yourself off. Or stones into bread, because, you know, I don't think I can do that. I, got, I, I guarantee you, these same challenges are coming into your life. The devil is coming, and he's asking you, do you trust in God or not? Do you worship something other than God? Because that's what he's tempting us to do. Do you know what is real and what is fake? Do you know what has longevity and what is temporal? Do you? Because those are the temptations coming to us just like Jesus. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. A little update in terms of how do we overcome in our life these kind of temptations. Listen to what Paul, writing to the church at Corinth says, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 10, he says, now these things happen to them, speaking of Old Testament men and women, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verse 13, for no temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with any temptation. He provides a way of escape so that you too can endure it. The first thing we need to take away from this is we need to realize temptations are a trap. I mean, bottom line is when, when you're tempted, the first thing that should pop into your head is like, this is a trap. It's a trap. To the, to the wise person, they see traps and they avoid them. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs tells us very clearly, the fool is someone who sees a hole and falls into it. They, 
Actually, in some cases, they actually dig the hole and then they fall into it. That's the fool. We can be foolish. We can actually create our own hole and then fall into it, our own trap. As a matter of fact, that's the problem with quicksand. It looks, looks normal, acts normal until you step in it, then it's not. But being able to recognize what it is for what it is, for example, instant gratification. Is, th- is that a snare and a trap? Of course it is. And we all know it. And yet, we all gravitate towards it. We all like to be satisfied as quick as we possibly can, rather than delay. As a matter of fact, I think one of the hallmarks of the age we're in right now is an inability to delay gratification. We like to like, get it as fast as we can, as much as we can, maximize. A shortcut. We love shortcuts. And yet, in many cases, the shortcut leads to disaster because it doesn't accomplish the things. I actually was meeting with a, a school leader in, in Las Vegas, and they at, basically asked me, we were talking about a complex process to help their school. They said, look, look, this sounds really complicated and takes like a long, long time. How much, can I just write a big check and this be done? And I said, well, you can write the check and parts of it will be done, but you'll avoid the most important thing, and that is going through the process, which is in of, of itself is the benefit. And this gal's like, well, I, I don't want to take the time. Is that not us? I don't want to take the time. I want it quick and easy. Well, that's an illusion. Just like something fast and easy is also an illusion. I, I, I like to say, you know, the beauty of a power tool is it helps you make mistakes so much faster and so much more, more frequently. You know? Because there's something to be said about, you know, the old measure twice, cut once. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. With the right tool, you can measure 10 times and make the, still make the cut wrong. Because we, we're all about speed and we're all about uh, accomplishment. And yet, fast and easy is sometimes an illusion too. And the call is uh, to avoid those kind of traps. Your spiritual walk. You know, all you need to do is just do this thing and boom, you will be mature. No, it doesn't happen that way. It's a long process. It's involved. And the process itself has value. And then... God always provides a way out when there's temptation. There, there's always a way away from it. And sometimes it's very basic. Sometimes it's as basic as you need to get out of this place or in this spot. You should not be here. Consider the story of Joseph, right? He's tempted by Potiphar's wife. He uses the basic temptation avoidance technique, which is he flees. Yeah, he gets up and leaves. Now, there are still weird consequences, but sometimes that's... The basics of things. Leave that spot. Don't go to that place. I had read a funny little quote about temptation. It says, most of us flee from temptation, but some of us crawl away slowly, hoping it will catch us. I mean, there is a part of us that like, well, you know, I really want to be away, but I don't want to be away. I, I really don't want to do this thing, but I kind of do want to do this thing. I do. We have that tension in us. And you know, it's a funny thing. We tend to think of temptations as these monstrous big issues that kind of come into our lives. You know, they're really not. Most of the times, they're the little ones. As a matter of fact, that's a funny thing about calluses, right? Calluses, they don't, they don't just appear. They appear in little bits and pieces over time, and they grow, and they build on each other, and da 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 And suddenly, you've been holding a hoe for a week, and you have bl- not blisters anymore. You have calluses. Well, that happens in our hearts as we engage little teeny tiny things drawing us away from God, and pretty soon... 
It was a little painful in the beginning, but now it doesn't stop hurting. And now your heart is calloused as you're drawn away by little teeny tiny actions over time. And, you know, sometimes we think, you know what, this is just a little thing. It's harmless. It's not going to hurt anybody. Really? Does our engagement in sin not hurt anybody? Then why does the Bible say the sins of the fathers are visited on the children and the grandchildren? Sin rolls down and affects others beyond us, affects people around us. It has all kinds of effects that we don't see or know. And then, of course, my favorite is God will provide a way out, but sometimes I think we think, you know what, I can control this. I'm like in control. I'm really not really, God, thanks, appreciate it, don't need that way out because I can handle this. I can manage it. But the truth of the matter is, we can't. Romans 6.16 reminds us that 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 we give ourselves to, we become its slave. Listen to this, Paul writing. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, and he's referring to sin, you become the slaves of that one that you obey, whether it is a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The thing that we give ourselves to, we become its servant. We serve it, not vice versa. So, really in these things, the question is, are we trusting that God's plan is good and we're willing to go his way and not our way? And that's a question of obedience and self-control. We're called to do that. That's a question of perhaps walking away from things that we know we should be fleeing instead of engaging. Uh, Not being in a certain place or doing certain things, we should just be away from that. And then lastly, we should go to the one who really knows what sin is all about and temptation is all about and has overcome it. Someone who's familiar with our weakness, our frame, our challenges. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 18 reminds us of this. Since he, Jesus, was tempted in the things which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted as well. Who? knows your temptation? Who knows your frame? Who knows the very makeup of your thoughts and desires? He does. And yet many times I think that we try to take the shortcut around going to Christ, saying, I need some help here. Because we find that we have someone who is available to us in times of need. We can come to him and he will provide a way out. So, when we're faced with these challenges and temptations, do we take the shortcut? Or do we find a biblical source that gives us an exit? Or do we take the devil's approach and we find a biblical source to justify what we want to do for ourselves? Or do we try to put ourselves in God's position and put him to the test? I would just leave you with these questions. When you think about temptation in your life and you look at this experience in the life of Christ, do we immerse ourselves in the word of God? Because it's not just memorizing it, that's important, but that's not all there is to it. It's understanding the power of it and its effect in our lives. Do we cultivate that? Do we have a perspective of what has value in our lives in the world and what is an illusion? Can we identify temptation for what it really is, a snare and an opportunity to waylay us? Do we trust in God's ability 
to empower us to overcome things. And then lastly, do we lead a life that's open and transparent and connected with others who they have either struggled with it or we'll let them speak into our lives and bring some truth into us and challenge us? Because that's really the question as we consider uh, this particular story. Temptations will be with us. They're not going to go away. God calls us to be overcomers of these kind of testings and temptations, and he gives us the mechanisms to be overcomers. But do we engage them? He makes the tools available. Do we pick them up? He gives us opportunity. Do we take advantage of it? He gives us capacity. Do we engage it? So as we ponder those questions, one of the wonderful things we'll do this evening is to come to the table and take communion. We may need to ask God to forgive us. We may need to ask God to empower us. We may need to ask God to open our eyes to see the things that are tempting us and what they, what they really are and what they're really about. So would you do that? The communion table's open here and there. Uh, come up, break the bread, dip it, in the, dip it in the juice, and remember the sacrifice of Christ who 